0: Hello and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Asante Sana, Molefi Asante's Afrocentricity. In 1942, a boy was born to a poor black family in Valdosta, Georgia, and was named after his father, Arthur Lee Smith. From humble beginnings, the boy grew up to become a world-renowned scholar, attaining fame and influence especially for his contributions to the growth of the discipline of black studies. To understand what is distinctive about his contributions, it's not a coincidence but rather a central part of the story that, like many of the other figures we've covered, he eventually left his birth name behind and took a new one. As he has explained in an interview... In 1972, I went to Senegal, Ghana, Nigeria, Tanzania, Ethiopia, and Kenya for the first time, and for the first time realized how crazy it was for a black man to have a European name. It was in Ghana, but it occurred to me that I had to change my name. He was given his last name, Asante, by none other than the Asanta Hene, the traditional monarch of the Ashanti people of Ghana. With this ethonym as a last name, he chose as his middle name, Kete, inspired by a Ghanaian friend of his, Kete Bofa, an aeronautical engineer and also a traditional king. Thus, Asante's middle and last names are both from the Akan language, spoken by so many in what is now Ghana. For his first name, though, the man formerly known as Arthur chose to express solidarity with the South African struggle. He named himself Molefi, a common name among the Sotho people of South Africa and Lesotho. Molefi Kete Asante, Now this was a name fit for an African. He went through the process of getting his name changed legally in 1973. By this time, he'd already obtained his Ph.D. from UCLA's Department of Communication in that most tumultuous of years, 1968. He had then spent a year teaching at Purdue University before UCLA hired him to lead their new Center of Afro-American Studies. It was in this context that he also became the founding editor of the Journal of Black Studies. In 1973, the same year he got his new legal name, he took a new job in the Department of Communication at the State University of New York at Buffalo. As we noted in episode 118, it was here that Asante became friends with Abdias do Nascimento, the two of them influencing each other as Asante worked on his theory of Afrocentricity and Nascimento worked on his theory of Quirombismo. The theories are so obviously connected that it is not totally inappropriate to call quilombismo a Brazilian form of Afrocentricity and Afrocentricity what quilombismo looks like coming from an African-American point of view. This brings us to Asante's 1980 book Afrocentricity, The Theory of Social Change. It was not his first book, that would be his Rhetoric of Black Revolution from 1969. Neither was it the first book he published under his African name, that would be a rare work titled African and Afro-American Communication Continuities from 1975. Afrocentricity was, however, an importantly new thing. The titles of the two earlier books indicate how Asante's previous work generally displayed his training and expertise in the subjects of rhetoric and communication. From the very first sentence of the first chapter of Afrocentricity, it's clear that this is no longer his project. He announces, This book is a philosophical inquiry into the future of the Afrocentric perspective. We have, in Asante's Afrocentricity, a self-consciously philosophical work, and this initial statement of his philosophical perspective was one he came back to, revising it and bringing it to the world anew a couple of times. The first major revision came with a 1988 edition published by Africa World Press, and then in 2003, he brought out another revised and expanded edition through the Chicago-based publisher African American Images. In some ways, the 2003 edition provides readers with the most informative experience. For example, in the original edition, it is not entirely clear where to find the book's most general or authoritative definition of the word afrocentricity, but the most recent edition makes this crystal clear. In a section helpfully entitled Definition, we find this italicized clarification. Afrocentricity is a mode of thought and action in which the centrality of African interests, values, and perspectives predominate. In regards to theory, it is the placing of African people in the center of any analysis of African phenomena. Thus, it is possible for anyone to master the discipline of seeking the location of Africans in a given phenomenon. In terms of action and behavior, it is a devotion to the idea that what is in the best interest of African consciousness is at the heart of ethical behavior. Finally, Afrocentricity seeks to enshrine the idea that blackness itself is a trope of ethics. Thus, to be black is to be against all forms of oppression, racism, classism, homophobia, patriarchy, child abuse, pedophilia, and white racial domination. Of course, if one is interested in understanding not just Asante's most recent expression of this outlook, but his development as a thinker, returning to the earlier editions is vital. For example, there is certainly no definition of blackness as ideally anti-homophobic in the earlier editions of the book, and this is a point to which we will return. Placing Asante's original contribution in 1980 within its historical context, it helps to consider how he speaks of Islam in the book's first chapter, where he builds on Chancellor Williams's warning in The Destruction of Black Civilization that the African-centered mind must oppose Islamic imperialism no less than Christian European imperialism. Asante roots his Afrocentricity in the idea of an African cultural system, arguing that all African people participate in the African cultural system, although it is modified according to specific histories and nations. Afrocentricity thus recognizes diversity among African people, but prizes what it posits beneath this diversity, which is a fundamental cultural unity. Directly following this point, Asante cautions, Adoption of Islam is as contradictory to the diasporan Afrocentricity as Christianity has been. Here, Asante takes for granted arguments made by others, who have already shown African Americans and other peoples of the diaspora, that the imposition of Christianity upon their ancestors is something to be questioned, challenged, and overthrown. Later on in the book, Asante adds his own extensive discussion of the black church. He admits that music and dance in the context of the church have provided ways of expressing what he calls the essence of our Africanity. Yet he is critical of how black Christianity has often encouraged ignorance of the African past. Less explored, but nonetheless urgent, he claims in the first chapter, is the problem posed by Islam. Urgent, precisely because it had in recent decades figured so much in manifestations of nationalism and resistance to white domination among African Americans. Asante is also writing in the wake of something we mentioned last time, the efforts by Elijah Muhammad's son, Warith Deen Muhammad, to lead African Americans who had previously been loyal to his father into the non-separatist orthodoxy of Sunni Islam. Asante laments, while the Nation of Islam, under the leadership of Elijah Muhammad, was a transitional nationalist movement, the present emphasis of Islam in America is more cultural and religious. This is, in his view, a serious and perhaps tragic mistake. Devotion to this faith, for Asante, means devotion to a non-African cultural orientation. But going beyond what we find in Chancellor Williams, Asante also positively suggests that we can learn a lot from Islam about what it means to put religion to good nationalistic use. He asserts as a general principle, all religions rise out of the deification of someone's nationalism. Islam is a particularly instructive example. After all, in Islam, the language of God is said to be Arabic, the religion's most sacred pilgrimage must be made to Mecca, prayers are made in the direction of Mecca, and so on. In all these ways, the religion is an Arabizing influence, which can result in black Muslims seeking to out-Arab the Arab. We are asked to imagine a reverse situation in which The white people of Europe and the Arabs of Arabia could be found turning heads towards the sacred forest of Ashogbo in Yoruba Land or towards Tuskegee in Alabama or Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania. Asante can't help but be impressed by Islam's Arabizing power and calls it one of the most powerful tools of mind control ever created. For him, the Prophet Muhammad is the greatest nationalist who ever lived in Arabia. He adds the caveat that a nationalist is not necessarily a racist. Indeed, the true nationalist is never a racist. All in all, Asante seeks to give due respect to the power of Arab nationalism demonstrated by the spread of Islam, while also calling black people to become dedicated African nationalists who will resist that Arab power. Thus, he draws practical conclusions, such as this one, whose significance to his way of thinking should be obvious to us by now. We say, if you must change your name, choose an African name, not an Arab name, like Yusuf or Karim. Resisting the Arabization that comes with Islam allows black people to remain true to themselves while also working to bring their own non racist message to all the peoples of the world. But what is this message? According to Asante, the task of the Afrocentric is nothing less than to humanize the universe. And unlike Christianity and Islam, this universal mission will not require engaging in violent conquest. Asante writes, Afrocentricity does not convert you by appealing to hatred or lust or greed or violence. As the highest, most conscious ideology, it makes its points, motivates its adherents, and captivates the cautious by the force of its truth. Was Asante trying to start a new religion? It should certainly be clear that he aimed to transform the consciousness of his readers to effect what we might fairly call a conversion. The most self-evidently religious aspect of the book is a so-called ideology of victorious thought, that he names N'Gia. In the 1980 edition, he provides a list of ritual activities that followers of N'Gia can observe. Then in the 1988 version, he added a new section at the end of the book titled N'Gia, The Way, which consists of ten sets of numbered aphorisms forming what feels very much like a new sacred text. The very first aphorism seems to announce Asante as a prophet, as it reads, This is the way that came to Molefi in America. Then again, not long after this, is an aphorism that reads, The way is not contradictory to Hinduism, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Yoruba, or any other way of peace and power. It is complementary. And looking back in 2003, Asante stressed that NGIA was not to be interpreted as a religion. The tensions here concerning Asante's religious or secular intentions may remind us of Maulana Karenga, and his evolving presentation of Kwanzaa first as a substitute and then as a complement to Christmas. And indeed, no other individual thinker influenced Asante's theory of Afrocentricity as greatly as Karenga. For starters, NGIA means the way in Swahili. This choice to use a Swahili word was undoubtedly influenced by Karenga's use of that language to name everything he took to be fundamental to an African worldview, including the name he chose for his philosophy as a whole, namely Kawaida, or tradition. We can also, at this point, explain the Afrocentric pun in this episode's title. As we've seen, Asante derived his last name not from the Bantu language, Swahili, but from the Ashanti people of what is now Ghana. Yet it still seems fitting, when considering his contributions, to invoke one of the first phrases anyone learning Swahili will be taught, Asante sana, which like merci beaucoup or muchas gracias means thank you very much. In an interview, Asante himself confirmed the centrality of Karenga among his sources of inspiration. As to describe the intellectual and developmental process that brought him to create Afrocentricity, Asante answered, well, that's a very good question, and there's a simple answer. I am deeply influenced by Maulana Karenga. Reading Afrocentricity, the theory of social change, Karenga's significance becomes clear primarily by the way that Asante places him in a tradition of great black thinkers, Washington is celebrated, but Garvey is prized even more for building on him while understanding, as Washington did not, that the assertion and affirmation of the African cultural heritage was necessary for true liberation of diasporan Africans. King and Du Bois are appreciated, but also criticized for failing fully to escape a Eurocentric outlook and embrace true nationalism. Elijah Muhammad is credited as a pioneer of fighting for liberation at the level of religious symbolism. In 1988, Asante added a section on Malcolm X, the conclusion of which is well supported by the episodes of this podcast series. Asante wrote, Malcolm's multifaceted views inspired Bobby Seale and Huey Newton, the black Marxists, the Muslims, the Christians, and the systematic nationalist Malana Karenga. In fact, the richness of Malcolm's philosophy generated a thousand ways to fight for liberation. As this last quotation already indicates, the culminating figure in Asante's construction of the path to Afrocentricity is the systematic nationalist, Karenga. He is presented as a philosophical mind of far-reaching vision, one who was ahead of his time in the 1960s for being concerned first and foremost with cultural reconstruction. Still, Asante was not afraid to criticize Karenga. In the 1980 edition, Asante complained about the anti-supernatural dimension of Karenga's thought, attributing to him a materialistic concept of history, that stands out as his most serious flaw, Afrocentrically, given the importance to the African cultural outlook of recognizing the continuum of spirit and matter. Happily, by 1988, Asante felt able to credit Karenga with overcoming this earlier flaw, writing that his work over the course of the 1980s proves that Karenga believes that an Afrocentric history must never separate the spiritual and the material. The 1980s was also a time of ever increasing prominence for Asante and his theory. In 1984, he left Buffalo to go to Temple University in Philadelphia, where he became chair of the African American Studies Department, eventually renamed, in accordance with his terminology, the Africology and African American Studies Department. In 1987, this department became the first Black Studies program to offer the PhD, and Asante himself would go on to supervise a vast number of dissertations. Combined with his continuing editorship of the Journal of Black Studies, his influence on the field became immense and far-reaching. Meanwhile, he continued to elaborate his theory, publishing The Afrocentric Idea in 1987, Kemet Afrocentricity and Knowledge in 1990, Malcolm X's Cultural Hero and Other Afrocentric Essays in 1993, and An Afrocentric Manifesto Toward an African Renaissance in 2007, this among other books. One of his clearest attempts to bring more Afrocentricity to the study of the history of philosophy, the topic of our own podcast, would be his 2000 book, The Egyptian Philosophers Ancient African Voices from Imhotep to Akhenaten. Note the title's emphasis on philosophers rather than philosophy. Asante's explicit aim is to familiarize readers with the names of individual thinkers. He seeks, as he puts it, to introduce the reader to the wonderful joys of knowing ancient Egyptian philosophers so that their names will become as familiar to you as the names of Socrates, Plato, Confucius, Aristotle, and Mencius. How important is Asante's own name in the history of Africana philosophy? Here's one indication. Something like a third of the article that introduced Africana philosophy as a term is devoted to a critical evaluation of Asante's thought. As we mentioned back in the very first episode of this whole series, the African-American professional philosopher Lucius Outlaw can be credited with introducing Africana philosophy, As a way of referring to philosophy that comes from Africa, from the African diaspora, or in some sense from both. He did this most notably in a 1992 article titled African-African-American-Africana Philosophy, published in the journal The Philosophical Forum. As we will discuss further in an upcoming episode, Outlaw's article was published in one of two groundbreaking special issues of that journal that did much to establish the philosophy of Africa and the African diaspora as an important area of study among professional philosophers writing in English, especially in the United States. Outlaw offers us a perspective on Asante that is at times sharply critical, concluding that Asante falls far short of his own philosophical goals. Before considering Outlaw's criticisms, however, we must understand why it made sense for Asante to loom so large in the article in the first place. Outlaw begins by noting that it had been at that point about a half of a century since debates first emerged in academic settings concerning what sense, if any, it made to attach the word African to the word philosophy. He clearly has in mind as a starting point the excitement and controversy that followed the 1945 publication of Placide Temples' Bantu Philosophy. Looking back from the 1990s, Outlaw sees much growth and development, noting the significant numbers of formerly trained Africans building up African philosophy as a disciplinary formation and noting as well the growth and development of African-American philosophy as a similarly distinct area of research as increasing numbers of Americans of African descent entered the field. In light of these parallel developments, he proposes Africana philosophy as a gathering notion under which to situate the articulations, writings, speeches, etc., and traditions of Africans and people of African descent collectively, as well as the sub-discipline or field-forming, tradition-defining, or tradition-organizing, reconstructive efforts which are to be regarded as philosophy. Right after making this proposal, however, he raises the self-critical question of what, if anything, is so characteristic of the philosophical practices of African and African-descended thinkers, such that we might be able to see these practices as constituting a unified and distinctive enterprise. He goes so far as to ask whether Africana philosophy should be understood as a venture which should be bound by particular norms, appropriate to discursive practices by and or in the interests of African peoples, in contrast to norms of the life worlds of other peoples. This is what makes Asante so relevant. He is, in Outlaw's estimation, the most prominent defender of the thesis that all African peoples ought to be organizing their philosophical thought in accordance with a particular unifying agenda and shared strategies of inquiry. He draws attention to the mature statement of Afrocentric methodology in Asante's Kemet Afrocentricity and Knowledge, according to which the Afrocentrist seeks to uncover and use codes, paradigms, symbols, motifs, myths, and circles of discussion that reinforce the centrality of African ideals and values as a valid frame of reference for acquiring and examining data. Outlaw appreciates how Asante's work seeks to move us beyond a world in which European norms and agendas predominate. He worries, however, that Asante's attempt to substitute an African foundation in place of this European hegemony requires ignoring all the discontinuities that result from the various historical, geographical, cultural, and sociological dispersions of African and African-descended people over time and space. Outlaw's belief in the usefulness of Africana philosophy, as a gathering term, does not lead him to engage, as he believes Asante does, in the treatment of the term African as if it had the unifying power of a trans historical, transgeographical essence. Thus Outlaw approvingly quotes Stuart Hall's claim that to be black is to belong to a politically and culturally constructed category, which cannot be grounded in a set of fixed transcultural or transcendental racial categories, and which therefore has no guarantees in nature. In the absence of the guarantee of a Black essence, the work of building up Africana philosophy as a disciplinary formation is, he believes, more complex and difficult. He takes the gathering together of the philosophical traditions of African and African-descended people to be only an initial, though important, step, after which the real work begins. Interrogating works, learning from them, comparing and contrasting them with endeavors by African and other peoples— as part of a larger ongoing effort to catalogue and study the many creations of African peoples, the contributions of African peoples to the treasure houses of human civilization. We find another critical perspective on Asante's work in a seminal essay from 1990 called Africa on My Mind, Gender, Counter-Discourse, and African-American Nationalism, published in the Journal of Women's History by the African-American historian E. Francis White. The essay examines connections between African-centered thought, as it developed among African-Americans in the latter part of the 20th century, and the problem of repressive gender relations. Karenga comes up as an example, unsurprisingly, given his claim back in the 1960s, in the quotable Karenga, that gender equality should be regarded as the devil's concept. Like Asante, though, White is attentive to how Karenga has changed in the 1980s. Indeed, she admits to being impressed by the extent of this change. She sees in Karinga's Introduction to Black Studies a sensitivity to criticisms by Black feminists that reshaped his views, even if he does not explicitly note the change. But Karinga is only one of a number of targets of criticism in White's article, which does not blame any one individual for the problem of sexism in Black nationalism. Somewhat surprisingly, when it comes to Asante, White's critique does not mostly concern gender. She is most bothered, like Outlaw, with the way Asante downplays Black diversity, She writes, what I find most disturbing about Asante's work is his decision to collapse differences among black people into a false unity that only a simplistic binary opposition would allow. With regard to gender, White even acknowledges a moment where Asante speaks positively of feminism's compatibility with Afrocentricity. This moment comes in, the Afrocentric idea, as he highlights the parallel quests of constructing a post-Eurocentric and a post-male ideology as we unlock creative human potential. Yet, White finds this moment to be an exception to a disappointing rule. She claims there is a loud silence around gender in most of Asante's work. He avoids the topic so often in her eyes that the passage just quoted counts as nothing more than a shallow gesture towards the concerns of black feminists rather than an attempt to take their concerns seriously. We can turn to an essay Asante wrote later on, Afrocentricity, Women, and Gender, included in his Malcolm X as Cultural Hero and other Afrocentric essays, to see how he responds to white and other black feminists. Here, Asante makes it clear that he intends Afrocentricity to be not merely neutral on questions of gender, but rather aggressively anti-sexist. He even seems to recognize what Kimberly Crenshaw had recently named intersectionality when he stresses the need to pay attention to how African-American women suffer from the African patriarchy of dominance and white female racism, along with the white patriarchal racism of white men, It remains important to him, however, not to confuse the European past with the African past. Like Sheikh Anta Diop, who greatly influenced the development of his thinking over the course of the 1980s, Asante takes the conflict and subordination of women in European gender relations to result in part from the difficulties of the northern climate. In Africa, he claims, even if a man forced a woman out on her own, she could gather her own yams, cassava, and bananas. He concludes his discussion of how African conditions fostered greater equality for African women by evoking a female leader we began discussing in our last episode. Thus, the African woman is not a Joan of Arc waiting to be burned, but an Nzinga who goes to fight the Portuguese, and when she speaks to the Portuguese in her role as military queen and is refused a seat, her soldiers compete for the opportunity to have her sit on their backs. Whatever one concludes about the strength of Asante's efforts to oppose sexism, it must be noted that all three editions of Afrocentricity contain a section that would fit most people's definition of homophobia. This in spite of his claim in the 2003 edition that to be black in a moral sense is to be anti-homophobic. Asante's view, as expressed in the original 1980 edition, is that homosexuality is a deviation from Afrocentric thought because it makes the person evaluate his own physical needs above the teachings of national consciousness. In the 2003 edition, the first notable change, ironically, is the gender equality in his new expression of the claim. Homosexuality and lesbianism are deviations from Afrocentric thought because they often make the person evaluate his or her own physical needs above the teachings of national consciousness. An idea that seems to underlie his view even if it is not explicitly stated, is that one cannot contribute to the building of strong Black families if one has constructed one's identity on the basis of a sexual desire that is, in itself, contrary to the building of families. Asante argues in the 2003 edition that the historical African response to same-gender love and desire has been toleration, but not one of acceptance as a model of relationships. This attitude of toleration is what justifies for him Afrocentricity's claim to be anti-homophobic. He invokes the greatness of Bayard Rustin, James Baldwin, and Audrey Lorde, arguing that while their lifestyle was never accepted as optimal for the African community, neither were they excluded. He also asserts, I support the rights of gays and lesbians to make their own choices, and I will defend their right to be free from attacks, insults, and assaults. But he concludes by once again drawing a historical distinction, pointing out that while ancient Greek authors like Plato seemed to speak favorably of homosexuality, the 42 negative confessions from the Egyptian Book of the Dead condemn the practice. So it seems clear that Asante's anti-sexism is more authentic than his claim to be anti-homophobic, and we might consider at least one factor that could help explain this disparity. Along with figures like Karenga and Nascimento, another major influence on the initial development of Afrocentricity was Karyamu Welsh, Asante's partner at the time that he was creating and first articulating his theory. Welsh was born in North Carolina and raised in Brooklyn. By the time she met Asante in Buffalo, she had already established herself as a dancer and choreographer. The 1980 edition of Afrocentricity is a testament to the intellectual dimension of their love partnership, starting with the foreword that Welsh provided the book. It begins, the need for an Afrocentric philosophy is so great that it is impossible for me not to insist on every black person reading this book. We then find in Asante's first chapter a comparison of his creation of Angia with Welsh's creation of Mufundalai, defined in the book's glossary as a philosophy of African aesthetics developed by choreographer-writer Karyamu Welsh. As time went on, the word became most associated with the dance technique that Welsh pioneered and taught to generations of students. The year that Afrocentricity was published was also the year of Zimbabwe's independence, and Welsh and Asante went to spend time in that country on Fulbright scholarships. Welsh deepened her knowledge of African dance while living on the continent and became the founding artistic director of the National Dance Company of Zimbabwe. Welsh and Asante were also finally married in Zimbabwe, and their son, Molefi Komalo Asante, was born there. Now known as M.K. Asante, their son has become an acclaimed writer and documentary filmmaker. His best-known book, Buck, a memoir, published in 2013, is, among other things, a portrayal of the tough times in the 1990s, during which the family fell apart, ending in Welsh's and Asante's divorce in 2000. The book's depiction of a son's estrangement from his father and their ultimate reconciliation is deeply touching. Let us return, however, to the importance of women's voices in African-centered thought, which is exemplified by Welsh's work as a scholar up until her death in 2021. One problem with the stereotyping of African-centered thought as patriarchal is that it can obscure just how many of the major figures of African-centered thought in the 1980s and 90s were outspoken women, greatly respected as leading intellects in many black circles, while also stirring up as much controversy with their work as their male counterparts. We can explore some of the controversy they sparked by turning again, as we did last time, to Stephen Howe's attempted takedown of the tradition in his book, Afrocentrism, Mythical Paths and Imagined Homes. Few of the thinkers that Howe discusses disturb him as much as Frances Cress Welsing, a psychiatrist who first began to publish her unique views on racism in the 1970s, but who is best known for her 1991 book, The ISIS Papers. Here's a key passage from that book explaining her view The reason that the black male is and always has been central to the issue of white supremacy is clarified by the definition of racism as white genetic survival. In the collective white psyche, Black males represent the greatest threat to white genetic survival because only males of any color can impose sexual intercourse, and black males have the greatest genetic potential of all non-white males to cause white genetic annihilation. Thus, black males must be attacked and destroyed in a power system designed to assure white genetic survival. Critics who point to sexism among African-centered thinkers might find it convenient that Cress Welsing's theory of racism is so focused on black men. Actually, though, it may be more appropriate to place her concern with white fear of black men in a tradition of gender analysis by black women thinkers that reaches back to Ida B. Wells's writings on lynching. Still, there's no getting around the fact that Cress Welsing pushed her analysis to extremes that many have found simultaneously confusing and amusing, such as the memorable chapters of the book Where she treats everything from the Christian cross to guns to the Washington Monument to just about every single sport or game involving balls as symbolic of white fear of the black penis. A graphic passage on white male homosexuality, in fact, so graphic and frankly homophobic that we'd rather not provide its details, pushed Howe over the edge, causing him to call the ISIS papers idiotic and contemptible, and to lament the fact that it reportedly sold 40,000 copies within a few months of publication. Howe is more complimentary, however, when discussing another major female African-centered thinker, Marimba Ani. Howe writes, Despite Asante's preeminence, undoubtedly the most powerfully argued as well as most extensive presentation of the essential general features of an Afrocentric worldview is a recent massive book by Marimba Ani. This refers to her 1994 book, Urugu, an African-centered critique of European cultural thought and behavior. Ani drew her title from a Dogon legend, according to which the creator had been providing each being with twin souls, male and female, until a being called Yurugu arrogantly wished to compete with the creator and did not wait for his female twin soul. Out of his broken placenta, he created earth, this imperfect place inhabited by single-souled, impure, and incomplete beings like himself. Ani uses Yurugu as a metaphor for Europe's disordered imperialistic culture, concluding at the end of her book, Now that we have broken the power of their ideology, we must leave them and direct our energies towards the recreation of cultural alternatives informed by ancestral visions of a future that celebrates our Africanness and encourages the best of the human spirit. Each of the cultures historically victimized by Europe must reclaim its own image. One way she tries to reclaim African culture is to introduce various technical terms using Swahili, like Karenga before her. Among these, the one that has become most widely used is Ma'afa, which she translates as great disaster and which she applies to the massive loss of African life during the transatlantic slave trade. In highlighting women thinkers like Kress Welsing and Ani, we do not mean to suggest that the mere existence of women contributors is enough to show that a tradition of thought is not sexist and patriarchal. Just consider Shahrazad Ali's notorious 1989 book, The Black Man's Guide to Understanding the Black Woman. A member of the Nation of Islam, Ali created a firestorm of controversy with this book, given her claim that the black woman's unbridled tongue is such a source of discord that, when she crosses the line and becomes viciously insulting, it is time for the black man to soundly slap her in the mouth. E. Francis White also reflected extensively in Africa on My Mind on the capability of black women to be the source of regressive gender discourse. In fact, the example of African-centered thought that she critically discusses at greatest length is a piece by Charlene Harper Bolton called A Reconceptualization of the African-American Woman, which clearly combines this concern to return to African tradition with a rejection of feminism. In the final section of her article, though, White showed herself open to the possibility that feminism and nationalism can be fruitfully brought together. She explored this possibility by discussing a thinker we have already prominently featured in our story, Patricia Hill Collins. At the time White was writing, Collins had not yet published Black Feminist Thought. It came out in 1990, the same year White's article was published. But Collins had already published a piece called The Social Construction of Black Feminist Thought, in which she argued, since Black women have access to both the Afrocentric and the feminist standpoints, an alternative epistemology used to re-articulate a Black woman's standpoint reflects elements of both traditions. In response, White registers her concern that Collins may have gone too far In trying to identify an essential black women's standpoint, thus falling into the trap of ignoring diversity. Still, she admits that Collins and other Afrocentric feminists are able to reveal the strengths of nationalist ideology in its counterattack against racism. By the time Asante clarified his view that Afrocentricity should be understood as aggressively anti-sexist, he was happy to count Collins in a list of leading Afrocentric female thinkers. As the 20th century came to an end, though, Collins reconsidered her own use of the term. In the revised 10th anniversary edition of Black Feminist Thought that she published in 2000, she used the term much less often, explaining that over the course of the 1990s, news media and sub-segments of U.S. higher education attacked the term as well as all who used it, to the point that they effectively discredited the term. Collins thus lamented in 2000 that, as of this writing the term afrocentrism refers to the ideas of a small group of black studies professionals with whom i have major areas of disagreement primarily concerning the treatment of gender and sexuality especially since it is the label rather than her ideas that collins felt compelled to change this is a striking case study concerning the management of public controversy with respect to academic word choices it would not be the last time that the name of a movement within africana philosophy would be taken by its opponents and transformed into a term of abuse. It's a cheap trick, but as Collins perceived, also an effective one. This has never been more clear than from recent events, as conservatives have raced to criticize one theory in particular, which was perhaps the inevitable response to a movement called Critical Race Theory. That's our next topic here on the History of Africana Philosophy.